Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Fire and Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Adam Spencer in conversation with Lex Hurst, recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Hello. Hello. Amazing. Hello, everyone. Before we get started, I'm just going to read... Um, this really poignant statement that I've been given about the pen empty chair that we have just over here on the stage, in case you're wondering. Um, so Pen was founded in 1921 to act as a powerful voice on behalf of writers harassed, imprisoned and sometimes killed for their views. The empty chair on stage is a symbol adopted by Pen International to represent the writers who cannot be with us because they're imprisoned for their writing. Penn International condemns the conviction of blogger and government critic Minam on 29 June 2017. Minam, who has been detained since her arrest in October 2016, was convicted of conducting propaganda against the Socialist Republic of Vietnam and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Penn International believes that Minam is being targeted for peacefully exercising her right to freedom of expression. And if you want to find out more about that, you can go to pen.org.au. So, an important thing, I think, to think about at a writers' festival like this. Um, I'm so thrilled to be here today with Adam Spencer. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a little intro, but I'm 100% sure that all of you know and love Adam already. But uh, so, well, at least know. <laughs> you could be here to hate view as you well. That is true. Um, Australia's favourite mathematician. You'll likely know and love Adam from his time hosting Triple J 702 breakfast shows, from his sleek geek science comedy show, from his passion for numeracy or for women's sports. You might even know that he was one of the founders of Dry July, which mm-hmm. I just found out, mm-hmm. which has just finished its 10th year. Um, and he also donates to a fantastic number of charities as well. Um, and he's also one of the ambassadors uh, for Sydney University for Mathematics. But he's here in his capacity today as an author of three best-selling popular mathematics books, which is The Big Book of Numbers, The World of Numbers, and his most recent one, Time Machine. Uh-huh. And we're going to have a fabulous chat about facts from this, about maths, about science, about life and the world and how they all intersect. Um, so let's start right here. Um, your most recent book, Time Machine, stops up at various points in our shared history and says, how cool was that? One brief moment from our personal shared history that you're unaware of, uh, and after this I'll stop fangirling, okay. I promise, Here we go. Uh, is that I was 18 when you finished your uh, Triple J right, yep. um, show uh, and I came to your very last show oh. at Sydney University and I bought a T-shirt and I got it signed uh, and I and it's the very place where you are now uh, a mass ambassador and I just was such a huge fan of you. You made radio smart for me when I was younger and I wonder what it was like bringing the smarts to breakfast radio and particularly to teenagers from all over that time. Yeah, I mean, Triple J is one of those... It's one of those things that you take for granted because you're lucky enough to have it. It is a phenomenal cultural institution, Triple J. Uh, Within Australia, we appreciate it, especially if you live outside of a major capital city. But when you see the way that um, uh, people from around the world who interact with Triple J, the bands who used to come in, a band like the Dandy Warhols, who sold more albums in Australia, not per head of population, more albums in Australia than their native US because of the fact that you had an agency like Triple J there. Mm. Uh, Just wonderful. And when I started, and especially when I started with Will and uh, 
we got on really quite well, but it just our natural conversation often tended to these two very different aspects of our personality. Mm. And so I would just nerd it up more and more just because it would give him the shits. And I used to love it. <laughs> but he did, did, and, and, and I think you've seen from the media career he's gone on to have that while Will can as a comic play the sort of lovable bozo, he's a remarkably intelligent, like whip smart guy. And so a lot of the time he's acting as though his ears were, you know, bleeding from the stuff I was talking about. He was fairly across it. He still thought it was quite nerdy and sad that I was as interested as I was. But he he was right on top of that stuff. It was great fun. And I remember the last show at, at Sydney Uni there and that was it was really fun and we had stories of you know, people came from from up here. Some people drove for nine hours to be there and things like that. But I still remember early on in my time at Triple J because I started in the afternoons. I did a year in the afternoons before breakfast. And I got I got a message, an email back in the early days of email from a girl who was about 13 years old and, and lived in a rural town and said, I really enjoy listening to your show. And since you've been on Triple J talking about the sort of stuff you talk about, I just get picked on at school a little bit less. And I've never, <laughs> I've never forgotten that message. I never, never forget hearing that from some girl who I'll, who I'll never meet and just putting that sort of stuff out there and changing the conversation about the sort of things that can be interesting and can be spoken about on the radio show was my r- real joy. I suspect that people have always found these things interesting, but you managed to make them seem a bit cool as well. And I think if we look at that, that's actually something that's gone across your entire career when you look at um, numeracy. Mm. It's something that doesn't have a great rep, and yet you've always managed to pull it out make it into a story and make it seem interesting. It's funny. We, mathematicians, we always note when you talk about the level of numeracy in the community and trying to encourage people to get their head around it more that, that people will quite happily... You know, but parents at parent-teacher interviews will quite happily boast, oh, well, <laughs> your mum was always pretty awful at mathematics. Mm. <laughs> no one will ever proudly say spelling, oh, that's just too hard for me. Mm. Or, you know, reading, don't like it. Books, hate them. No one, no mm. one ever boasts about that sort of stuff. But for some reason it's a badge of honour to be able to go, I am so crap at my times tables. Um, and that's, that's part of the conversation we need to change. Not everyone needs to be you know, a PhD scholar in mathematics, but it shouldn't be the sort of thing that people boast in front of their kids mm. about how awful they were at it in their own time. Because, I mean, kids, and it's, I talk about this all the time, especially with trying to get um, young girls uh, really passionate about mathematics. You know, it's a generalisation, but most young girls look at their mum and think that's pretty much the perfect human being. Now, the moment mum first says to her daughter, oh, maths, no, nah, you better go and ask your dad, I don't know. The moment she says that, she's saying to her daughter, you can go on to be as awesome in the world as I am, and I am pretty much the most awesome thing in the universe, mm. and be terrible at mathematics. Mm. Right? So mums with young daughters have to hang in there with maths homework for as long as they can, even if they do a little bit of, that's an awesome question, let's do it after dinner, and then race off and quickly <laughs> ring me or email someone or look it up online. Hang in there until you're like 11. If, if your kid finds out they're better than you at mathematics when they're 12... That's awesome. That's really empowering for the kid. Mm. If they find that out when they're six, that's no good for anyone. Maybe, maybe we need a maths hotline that you can quickly call. I am a maths hotline for my <laughs> friends. It's so embarrassing. And I'll, I'll find them whispering down the line going, is, is it cosine or tangent? <laughs> 
So how do we, as people who, you know, and I'm generalising here, but I reckon there's a few people in the audience who would consider themselves words people and whose brains similarly just freeze up and it's not so much that we can't do the maths, I suspect, it's more that it's just the idea of maths is so tricky. How do you get past that? What do you think we need to... Yeah, if only there was a series of books out there that were accessible to the lay reader <laughs> and, <laughs> and brought forward the beauty... And that, because the stop, I mean... My, my, my books aren't a course in anything. You can't, you can't read one of my books and then pass a particular course at university. It's not structured around that sort of sense, but it just, it just shines a spotlight on different things. So there's a chapter in World of Numbers called 10 Numbers That Mathematicians Love That the Rest of You Would Never Have Heard Of. And they're these beautiful... And there's, and there's some stuff in there that's like second or third year university is the first time you would encounter that mathematics. But I try and walk through it in a way that's really simple step forward in a way that doesn't seem particularly out of place compared to other facts or anything in the book. So it, it can be done. And, the, and, the, and I think, I, I hope, that then makes the beauty of it you know, self-evident. Mm. You, you've also mentioned that these books are entirely crammed full of facts as well mm. and that you can read it a few different ways as well. Yeah. Are there, if you think of the ideal reader now for these books, is it who you thought it would be for? Or No, it's interesting. When I st like the first book I, I wrote, I really just wrote because I'd finished my radio show in Sydney and I had a bit of spare time and I thought I'd like to do it. And I hadn't given much thought to, to who it would be aimed for and how many we'd... we'd um, print or anything like that, and it was self-published, uh, and and we thought we'd run off fifteen thousand of them and see how we go. And in fact, the guy who was organising that for me had to convince me to do fifteen and not ten thousand. And we said, okay, we'll do fifteen thousand. Mm. And it was a mix. It was the books one to one hundred, the big book of numbers, the, from the numbers one through to one hundred, both the mathematical and just pop culture and trivia facts about these numbers. And the two things I remember were the the, the mathematics I put in. I thought would appeal to kids getting towards the end of high school and into university. And the amount of feedback I got within days of the book being out from the parents of really smart, switched on 12 and 13-year-olds just shocked me. It mm. really, and it was wonderful. And, yeah, and the, the phrase I would hear is, you know, my daughter's borrowed it and she won't give it back mm. sort of thing. There's, there's the, the 12, 13-year-old kids are just brilliant. They're really smart. They're really curious. They're at an age where they can remember a few years ago where they couldn't sit down and read for 90 minutes about something. So they're really proud of it. And they're just voracious. They just eat those sorts of books. And so instantly the book went out and, and bookstores are selling out and all that. We're going, well, we just, well, we don't, and we just had to, you know, we had to order another. And it took six weeks for, mm. you know, and so there was this bookstore in the, in, in the, uh, the ABC store on the Central Coast ran out of the book on the 8th of December, didn't get new books until the 2nd of February. Mm -hmm. So they estimate they had about 600 people coming in asking for it. <laughs> it, was just, it was just mayhem. It was just madness. It was, it was great. But the, I was really surprised how strong that connection was. And a couple of years ago for World of Numbers, I did a sort of launch event and it was parents brought along their kids and uh, then we, I, I said, I'll take some questions. And all these kids hop up and they race to the microphone. And there would have been 50 kids would have asked questions. And 30 of them would have been Asperger's or somewhere on the autism spectrum. And for young, young kids on the autism spectrum who love numbers, my, my books are basically pornography. They just go. <laughs> and, and because the first book I'd self-published and horrible deadlines and I was all disorganised, there's a couple of, mis I call them misprints in the first book, um, because my mate who helps me typeset them is lovely but doesn't have a mathematical bone in his body. So if I write five plus eight equals potato, 
he will just dutifully type out five plus eight. So there's a couple of little misprints in the in the answers of the first book. And I had this one kid was at the microphone and he goes, "Look, Adam, I just want to say, look, your first book, chapter forty-two. I'm really sorry. I've I've tried the question so many times, so many times. So and I just keep getting a different answer to what you have, and I can't I can't work out why my answer is wrong. Can you just tell me the mistake I've made? And I got to say, John, no, mate, my my answer is a misprint. You are absolutely <laughs> correct with your answer, and I can still remember. He just stood at the microphone and went, "Yes." <laughs> And walked off back to his seat and was just hugging his mum. <laughs> the, the only thing better than getting the question right is getting it righter than Adam's Getting me to admit, yeah, mate, yeah. you nailed it. Um, there are so many different fabulous facts in these books. And um, one of the things that I really loved um, in the World of Numbers one is all of these. There are facts, cool facts about all of the elements. It's 100 things you don't know about the first 100 elements on the periodic table. Because we've all sat around and wondered, haven't we? You know, <clears throat> tell me something about niobium or whatever. And they're so beautifully designed as well. <laughs> yeah, not that, are they? My favourite fact in all of that is that, uh, and I think the year is 1669, but potassium, this chemist called um, Hennig, uh, Fernig Hennig, um, manages to separate potassium and, and get this the first person to um, uniquely locate potassium because he took a quantity of his own urine and heated it over a burner and as the liquid came away, when the liquid hits glass, it creates potassium crystals. And one, that's just brilliant. That's just genius. Two, when's the moment when he's just sitting at home one day and going, you know what? <laughs> I might just piss in a glass and set it on fire. <laughs> Who knows? And that's where potassium. Best day. Great work. Yeah, that's fabulous. I was going to say I'm going to lower the tone a bit, but I feel like no, you've no, just no. chosen the right anecdote for that. I wanted to, I mean, oh, look, I don't want to be the one who's like, there are lots of cool animal facts in this book. There are some cool But there cool are lots of cool facts. animal facts in this book. Mate, the animal kingdom is just stunning because as a human, you just, you just assume certain things about the way that we interact with the world. And, and then you just you find out about animals who, who carry their young in their cheeks or whatever, and just, just there's there's nothing you should assume about the way anything lives. You just get animals whose body shapes and form of life and life expectancy and everything is just so totally at odds with what we stumble around doing. I love it. There's a fabulous section all about eyes that I really mm. got into and, and breaking it down into numbers, but there's one which is the mantis shrimp um, has 13 photoreceptors in its eyes, whereas we only have three, which yep. you described as being like you would have an IMAX screen inside your brain yep. at all times, yeah, which yeah. is fabulous. A animals and eyes, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with eyes because I've only sort of got one and a half myself. But um, And everyone feels that's a bit awkward. It's all right. I know I've got a wonky eye. Don't panic. Um <laughs> I love eyes. Eyes are incredible. And my favourite one from the first book, the, uh, the, the box jellyfish has 24 eyes, right? At the base of the dome of its head, it's got four lots of six eyes, north, south, east and west. And these eyes, they look back through, not they're look looking outwards, they're looking inwards. But because the box jellyfish's head is see-through, they're looking and seeing through the other side. Wow. So the box jellyfish has 360-degree vision by looking backwards through its own see-through head, right? <laughs> and what's awesome about it is that when they take box... And I, I rang the researcher at James Cook University, not far from here, and she just poured forth about box jellyfish mm. and what is so awesome about them. And she said that what's incredible about them is that 
when when they look at a box jellyfish in that membrane in that head, there's no discernible brain. There's no clear bit that's the brain. It seems to be this network that's distributed far more throughout the entire box jellyfish. But they're really smart, right? You can put a box jellyfish in a maze; it'll work it out really quickly. When they're when they're hunting something, they'll make these decisions. Look, you guys go that way. We'll come around this way. You chase it down to us, and all this sort of stuff. That's awful. So they've, they've got their incredibly <laughs> intelligent, tactical thinkers despite the fact that they don't seem to have a brain that we can understand, but they have 360-degree information throughput through their 24 eyes that look back through their own see-through heads. That's just awesome. Uh, and that's one fact. That's it's one fact. fact. <laughs> uh, I, I did want to ask, okay, so you've got all of these adaptations, the see-through brains, yep. the eyes, all of these. If you could pick one animal adaptation to choose for your own, either for all of mankind or just for you personally, what would it be? Uh, there is one type of insect that when uh, the male, when sexually aroused, its genitals comprise 80% of its body mass. <laughs> I'm so glad that didn't happen before we're on stage together. <laughs> That's awesome. Let's take it back to maths. Can you tell us something cool and mathematical that will blow our minds? Something please? cool and mathematical. Last week, yeah, we had a little session called Night of the Nerds last night. So I recognise that some of you were there, and we got uh, Darva Sabell, who's in town. Darva Sabell's one of the great science writers of all time. I take I take individual chunks of maths and science and chunk them back out. She writes long-form stories. Darva wrote uh, Longitude, the book about when, when, they, when they were sailing, you know, back in the, in, the, in the heavy days of sailing in the 1600s, 1700s, it was pretty easy by navigating by the stars to work out how far north-south you were, but it's really hard to work out east-west because you're not just moving across the globe, you're moving through time as well and the stars are moving with you. And so they needed to invent clocks that could survive ocean journeys so that they can accurately navigate and not just crash into rocks and things like that. And Darva wrote that story, and it's one of the most beautiful, beautifully written because there's a big international competition for the clocks, and there's a guy who clearly wins the competition, but the dudes running the competition don't like him, so they keep changing the rules so he can't win. So it's got intrigue, politics, mm. clockmaking. It's, it's just beautiful, <laughs> right? And her latest book, The Glass Universe, about women in the 18 and 1900s at the forefront of astronomy... Just a brilliant, beautiful book. And so last night on stage, I got her to shuffle a deck of cards and explained how if you shuffle a deck of cards, genuinely shuffle them, put them on a table, spread them around with your hands and truly change the order, that new order of cards you've got, I am confident has never happened before in the history of the universe and will never happen again because the number of possible ways that you can shuffle a deck of cards is 67 digits long. Right, So I pointed out last night that if a billion people had a billion decks of cards, shuffled them all a billion times each every day for a billion years, you're not even scratching the surface of the surface of the surface of the number of ways you can sh shuffle cards. But let's go bigger than a big number like that. Let's go to infinity, right? And infinity's just great because the first time kids in primary school or whatever get introduced to the concept of infinity, it wigs them out and they start talking about, well, infinity, well, really, well, I've, I've got infinity plus 10 brains. <laughs> oh, really? Well, my dad is as strong as infinity plus infinity. And, and just watching kids try and get their head around is great. So infinity is not a number. Infinity is a measure. Think of infinity being like, like the word many. Right? If you said, I've got many books in my bag and I gave you another three books, you wouldn't have many plus three. Right? You'd still have many. Infinity is just a measure like that, it just, but it means a measure beyond what you can put a number on. 
but it's just a measure like that. So if you've got something that's infinite, just say you've got the counting numbers, one, two, three, four, five, that goes on forever. That's infinite, yeah? Let's take only half of that group, the even numbers, two, four, six, eight. That's still infinite. Mm. So even though I've halved an infinite set, I've still got an infinite set, yeah? And in fact, if you had all the even numbers written down and I had all the counting numbers written down, we can match them up because one matches to two, two to four, three to six. The ones in my group could match one on one with yours. Mm. So even though you've only got every second member of my set in yours, they are the same size. They are the same infinity. But, and this is the awesome bit, some infinities are bigger than others, right? <laughs> Stay with me. That group that we just had then of the, the whole numbers, one, two, three, four, five, that's what we call countably infinite because you can write out the list and you can say to me, that's the list of all the whole numbers. And I go, oh, really? Prove to me that number 57 is on your list. You are confident that you know exactly where 57 is going to be. So if you can put them in an order that contains all of them and you can find anything, that's countably infinite. The whole numbers, the even numbers, exactly the same. Like you can find 46 for me on your list. You know where it's going to be. The fractions, it turns out, we won't go into it too much, but the fractions, 3 over 4, 7 over 2, 156, 790, that group you can also come up with a countable order. So that numbers including fractions, what we call the rational numbers, it's the same sized infinity as 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. But when you get a bit kooky and you start to allow your decimals, like pi, that go on forever, things that don't recur, don't terminate, the real numbers, the list is no longer countable. If you say to me, I have a list of all those numbers, all the, re um, the real numbers, I can guarantee that I can generate a number that's not on your list. Mm. So that infinity is bigger than the countable infinity. Right? You're still with me? You're hanging in there, okay? Just keep, yeah, keep, I think keep. so. Can I ask a question that yep. might just, yeah. yeah. Is it because those numbers themselves can be infinite? Yes. So between any two, there have to be an infinite number more. Yeah, so okay. when you say you've got something on the list, I can always get between two numbers and generate another number that could not have been on your list. I exactly. Think I, I think I'm there. <clears throat> That's yeah. good. And then, so you've got this size infinity, you've got a bigger sized infinity. Well, the next question you ask is, well, <clears throat> is there anything in between? And the great mathematician Georges Cantor, who attempted to solve that, went mad. <laughs> it's called the continuum hypothesis, and he and another guy called Gödel, two of the greatest mathematicians of all time, who tried to solve the continuum hypothesis, both actually were institutionalised eventually, mm. whether it was directly because they tried to solve this problem or not. But it's a famous problem in mathematics, so difficult, it sent two of the smartest people in history completely around the bend. But, but some infinities are bigger than others. And did someone, has someone solved it? No, we have it? still not yet solved the continuum hypothesis. Ooh, Let's put that on your to-do list. Yeah. <laughs> I'll work on it until but I there's get a bit, there's a bit in World of Numbers where I explain the way that Cantor showed the fractions are countably infinite. And I've had 12-year-old kids read it and understand it. And that's just so, that's what's really beautiful about this whole process. For me. If mm. a 12-year-old kid can actually get their head around countable infinity... That's it's really rewarding. 
I love this idea that all of these ideas are based on people who've been doing this work for such a long time. And you have some of the greatest minds in history in these books, um, including people who, of course, have also got things entirely wrong. And I'm thinking of, there's a fabulous quote uh, from Time Machine, which is from, it's something Albert Einstein said in 1932, which is, there is not the slightest indication that nucle nuclear energy will ever be obtainable. It would mean that the atom would have to be shattered at will. And you conclude with the text, file this under even the greats get it wrong yep. sometimes. Yep, absolutely. I have a series of quotes throughout Time Machine because it goes through history and obviously then makes you think about where things are going. And I have a series of quotes from some fantastically great minds who got things wrong. A guy called Simon Newcomb who was the first ever American head of the um, astronomical sciences, the first you know, chief astronomer of the United States, said in around the 1890s of astronomy and looking up at the heavens, we're pretty much done. Pretty, there's, there's not much. We're a couple of little things and we'll have this baby pretty much sorted out. And that's in the 1890s. And he was good enough in his own life to come back and go, whoop, fuck, got that wrong, um, <laughs> and admit it. So, and it's, uh, but what's interesting, and we talked about this last night, is that, I mean, you know, demonstrably we know more now than we did a century ago in a lot of it, you know, like genetics and, and, and you know, physics and things like that. But I think in some ways we're also more aware now of how little we know than we were a century ago because there was a level of complexity that hadn't been revealed to us a century ago. Like it's a phenomenal understanding, it's a phenomenal moment in, in knowledge to suddenly crack DNA and the double helix and all that. But the moment you do that, you don't suddenly go, wow, we are so close to understanding all this. You suddenly mm. go, oh, shit. This is remarkably more complicated than we ever thought it was going to be. Yeah. It's the same with physics. When you, you know, I, I pointed out last night, and this is, I apologise for repeating this, this is the one, the one thing I'd love people to remember of anything I say this weekend, I think this is great. In 1932, a guy called Chadwick discovers the neutron, and with that we pretty much understand that basic structure of atoms that you all did in chemistry and physics in high school. Yeah, you've got a, a nucleus and some electrons going around the outside. So you've got protons, electrons, neutrons. In 1932, we knew that, the three fundamental particles. And if you think about that, that question of what is stuff, how, how, are, how are things combined, what are, what, are, what are things made of, it's one of the most fundamental questions a human can ask. Ever since whatever you want to call was human started doing whatever you want to call thinking, we've been asking about that. 10,000 years, 50,000, whatever you want to call it. We've been trying to answer that question, what is stuff made of, for tens of thousands of years. It took us up until 1932 to get to three particles. Now, 85 years later, that's one adult life expectancy today, we've gone from three fundamental particles to 61. That's just mind-blowing that physics has increased its knowledge in the most fundamental of questions you could possibly ask by a factor of 20 in one adult lifetime, mm. right? That's what is so incredible about the age in which we live now. But that points to more open, unanswered questions. You'd think if back in 1932 you told them, mate, by, not, by 2017 we'll have 61 particles – it would have been reasonable to think, okay, well, surely that, what, there's probably only 63. You must be pretty much close to done by then. Mm -hmm. No, we're probably, we probably know less now 
than we we probably realise we know less now than we did back in 1932 when Chadwick discovered the neutron. I definitely learned that I knew a lot less than I thought I did uh, when reading that particular part of the book, it's actually. glorious, isn't it? I was pretty comfortable with my electrons and my neutrons until that yeah, point. And your quarks and your leptons yeah. and your fermions and your Quark, up-downs. Quark, and... such a good... They've got fabulous names as well. They've got yeah, yeah. fabulous words. I'm going to open and up the to quark, questions. the quark comes from uh, Finnegan's Wake. A quark, a quark, or Ulysses. Mm. A quark, a quark for Mr. Mark. We can, bl- we can blame him then isn't as well. Um I'm going to open up for questions really soon, but I have one more question yep. for Adam so you can all get thinking. Um, and I think it's just a, a pop your hand up uh, sort of situation. And but, project. And um, Adam welcomes particularly curly questions, Love he's told questions. me. So the curlier the better. Um, there was one fabulous fact that stood out to me, I guess, because it you know, really spoke to me on the word side, which was that in the year 1900, the Ladies' Home Journal included in their predictions for what may happen in the next 100 years that there will be no C, X or Q in our everyday alphabet. Mm. They will have been abandoned because unnecessary, which is unfortunate, but I guess it's the nature of predictions. And so I thought I would just hand it over to you and say 100 years from now, Adam, some predictions... Do you, yeah, one, two, three, as many predictions as you'd like. Okay, we'll still have C's and Q's. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> Look, I think the, the, the interesting thing with language, and it, it struck me a few years ago when uh, when uh, Rudd and Gillard were alternating prime ministerships and they had a big one of them had a big push in there, supported by the other one, uh, that they were going to get every, every high school kid in Australia to study an Asian language. Every kid in Australia was going to study Indonesian or Japanese or whatever in high school. Ridiculous. Right? It's never going to happen. We don't have enough qualified teachers. You, you, national curriculum. It's just you know, a real, for me, just one of those motherhood statements that's never going to be carried through. And the reason it's particularly... Well, there's two reasons it's particularly silly. One, we're blessed in Australia to have more native speakers of those languages or first or gen- second generation speakers of those languages than most countries around the world do anyway. So if you need... If you need someone to help you speak Chinese to go and do business in China, we've got a lot of people in this country who already speak Chinese. But two, like within five years, this thing will have me fluent in every language in the world. Mm. Five years from now, you'll just put an earpiece in, I'll put an earpiece in, we'll speak, and you'll hear it in Japanese, and I'll be saying it in English and vice versa. And the language we need to be teaching every kid in high school is the language that writes that. Mm. It's coding. And the one one thing I do know about the next 100 years is mathematicians will build this entry. That's just screamingly obvious, Mm. right? Coding, writing apps, big data, statistical analysis, this this is the century of mathematics. Mm. And we like it because for 2,000 years we're the ones who've been getting the wedgies and getting flushed down the toilet. (laughs) But it is just... It's without doubt, and it's it's not just in real areas and mathematical areas. It's across all the sciences, but it's across everything else too. The way that you interact with your media, the fact that if you've got Netflix, it's telling you smarter and smarter more accurately every week the shows you might want to watch. That's all just big data algorithms. The way that you will interact with shops, the way that you will consume media, the way that you will be educated is all just going to be mathematics this century. So this coming century is for the mathematicians. Yep. And after that? Uh, the cyborgs that we will have Great. become. Great, yeah, the cyborgs come next. Thank you so much. Huge round of applause oh, for pleasure, the fabulous guys. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. 
You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.